What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm going to get through as many as I can in about 30 minutes, but I always say that, uh, and then it ends up being longer, and that is what it is. And so I won't read names, just going to read the question and then give my best answer to it. Um, this is taking place of one of my Q&As on Instagram. I love doing them on Instagram, but occasionally I like doing them in podcast format for those of you guys who listen and watch on YouTube for the full hand gesture, facial expression experience. Uh, and so without further ado, let's jump into it. First question is, other than satiety difference uh, in protein from food sources versus protein powder bars, etc., um, I basically I think what he's asking is other than the satiety difference between uh, protein bars, let's say, and whole food protein, which I suspect what he's trying to say is that it's a given that whole food sources of protein are going to be more satiating. We talk about protein being the most satiating macronutrient, but if we compared like chicken breast to a protein shake, the fact that the protein shake is liquid probably makes it less satiating, which I would agree with. Other than that difference, is there a difference in the protein content or the protein benefits? Uh, it depends. Uh, in these ones that you listed here, like protein bars, powder, usually not really. Um, the difference that there would be would be in the amino acid profile. Um, and if it's a protein powder or protein bar, most of the time they're using a complete protein source, whether that's a vegan complete protein source, pea proteins, uh, a blend, or it's an animal protein source. It's some form of like whey derivative or casein or like milk derivative, dairy derivative. Um, chances are the grams of protein you're getting from a bar or a shake are just as beneficial when it comes to muscle growth as the grams of protein you're getting from chicken breast, salmon, eggs, tofu, whatever. Um, but yes, there's a difference in terms of satiety, probably when it when we look at solid foods uh, and let's say minimally processed foods, more whole foods. Definitely. I definitely think so. Next question, increase in weight, decrease in rep, and sets equals less overall load. Keep going until back to prior reps and sets. Um, so what I think this person is saying is if I go up in weight, but I drop in reps, let's say, if I do the volume calculation, let's say I did eight times 100, that's 800 pounds of volume, let's say. But if I go to, I don't know, six reps of 120 pounds, uh, it's gonna be 720. And so that's less and so, right, 800, 720, yep, those are the two numbers I used. Okay, cool, good, 720 is less. Um, is that progression? I think a lot of people get really kind of in the weeds with this. Um, I'm not exactly sure that's what your question is asking, but I think that's what it's asking. If you go up in weight from week to week and your reps drop off and then you do a volume calculation, you're like, oh my God, I did less volume. I wouldn't worry about that so much. The pursuit of progression week to week over the long term is what matters. I wouldn't kind of get super myopic, super zoomed in on any one week to week progression and be like, oh my God, I went up in weight, but I dropped one rep and I do the volume volume calculation and it's not more. It's like, okay, well, what about next week and the week after that and the week after that? I'm way more concerned with what's going on long term, not super concerned with any single one-off week when this happens. Next question, I'm having surgery during my cut. Do I continue to eat in a deficit or bump up to maintenance? Personally, I don't think it's a good idea to be in a deficit while your body's trying to heal. I mean, this is like a serious trauma to the body, depending on what, what surgery it is. Could be minor surgery or larger surgery, but it's already a really serious thing on your body, happening to your body that your body needs to recover from. And so I probably would not do that in a deficit. I, I, I would not do that in a deficit. Um, so I would come back to maintenance. You know, are there contexts where that's not such a hard and fast rule? Maybe, but I just think that for the short term, in an attempt to allow your body to really recover optimally, I probably wouldn't do that. Next question, can quads only can quads grow only with quad extension? No, uh, leg extension is a good way to train the quads in the short position at the top, but all your like squats and your split squats and your leg presses 
your lunges, your hack squats, those are all going to be really great for growing, growing quads. Frankly, they're going to be better for growing quads because they're more challenging in a more lengthened position. Next question for hypertrophy. When wouldn't you do a, when wouldn't you want to do a drop set or myo rep? It, it's complicated. Uh, it's when wouldn't you want to do it? The answer is most of the time. Most of the time, like what we know right now is that nothing in the research beats straight sets. Just straight sets, taking close to failure, doing enough of those over time. Nothing in the research when compared to straight sets beats straight sets. Now that doesn't mean everything is, there's things that are way worse than straight sets and you should only ever do straight sets, but the introduction of a drop set or a myo rep or a myo set, whatever you call it, whatever, um, it's gonna be context dependent. I'll tell you, I like myo reps way more than I like drop sets. Um, I don't see the point in lowering the weight and having to do another like eight to 10 reps of which those eight to 10 reps, you're only gonna get like three or four hard reps anyway. Why not just keep the weight the same as it was during the set, rest 10 to 15 seconds and only have to do three or four. Do you get what I'm saying? If you do a drop set, I'm not shitting on drop sets. It's just like when someone's like, hey, let's do a drop set. Like in almost all ways, I think myo reps are better. A drop set means when you do a regular set, with let's say 15 pounds until you can't do any more and then you drop the weight to 10 pounds and you can keep going. And that's cool, but let's say you do 10 in the first set and then 10 in the second set. Only the last few reps are the reps that grow muscle for argument's sake, it's not that simple. Um, when you do myo reps, instead of doing 10 and 10, and that second 10 being with a lighter weight, you do 10 with the first weight, and then you keep the weight the same. Instead of going right into the second set, you rest something like five to 15 seconds, you keep the weight heavy. In those five to 15 seconds, you've, re you've recovered just a little bit, so you can do another couple of reps. And so what ends up happening is you do a set of something like 10, and then a set of like three, but all three of those reps were really hard. You only rested 10 to 15 seconds, and you didn't lower the weight. And it's just, a, uh, you're able to keep the weight heavier, which might be independently impo important depending on how low the weight drops in your drop set. Um, and you don't have to do another like fucking five to 10 kind of easy lead in reps. You just go right into the really hard ones and it saves a bit of time. Um, so I run a group program with, uh, you know, hundreds of people in it. And I question my, you know, the, my introduction of these kind of intensification techniques. And every time I'm at a crossroad of like drop set, myo rep, add a set, I tend to lead lean towards myo reps uh, or myo sets, whatever you want to call it. Next question. Are there benefits doing three types of bicep curls, concentration, hammer, and preacher? Um, I would rather you structure your bicep training around your arm position. And so because the bicep attaches at the shoulder, the shoulder position, how much arm, uh, elbow flexion uh, uh, that you, or shoulder flexion, shoulder extension that you're in is gonna affect the length of the bicep. And for in, in novel terms, here's what you wanna do. You wanna do some of your curls with your arm in front of your body, like a preacher curl, right? Also somewhat like a concentration curl. Um, you wanna do some of your curls with your arm in line with your body. Like, okay, a hammer curl, we'll talk about that in a second, but with a hammer curl, your arms are at your sides, right? So you wanna do some of your curling with your arms at your sides in line with your body. And you wanna do some of your curling with your arm behind the body, um, like an incline curl, right? Um, or a facing away cable curl. So you wanna kind of hit those three movements, maybe spending the least amount of time with the arm in front of the body, like a preacher curl, like a concentration curl. That doesn't mean you don't ever do them, but because the muscles probably grow best in a more lengthened position, or at least spending more of your volume in that in a more lengthened position or training the muscle in a more lengthened position um, is probably best for hypertrophy across the spectrum of arm in front of the body, which is a short position, arm in line with the body, which is let's say like more of a mid range and arm behind the body, which is gonna be more lengthened position. You probably spend the least amount of time with your arm in front of your body. 
Whether you do a hammer curl or not, a hammer curl is going to be really great for the brachialis, um, but still really going to train the bicep and the other elbow flexors as well. All right, quick step. I got a little white monster here. So if you catch me talking at like, I don't know, 150, 160 words per minute, you, you, I promise your Spotify is not on 1.5 times. Just me, highly caffeinated. All right, next question. Fat loss goals. Is the type of workout important or just being consistent and progressing? So when it comes to resistance training, um, yeah, how in-depth do I want to go on this question? I don't think most people need to be changing anything when they go into a deficit. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that in, in all contexts, people don't need to be changing anything or that, that there, that there aren't tiny little things that maybe you could do, but you want to be training hard enough to maintain muscle when you're in a deficit, when you're at maintenance or a surplus, you want to be training hard enough to build muscle. Those workouts are going to look really similar. The same kind of training that builds muscle at maintenance and builds muscle in a surplus helps you maintain muscle in a deficit. Now, there can be some small changes that you can make. It's possible, totally. But 99% of people do not need to be focused on it. They have way more things that they need to be focused on. When it comes to success in your fat loss, it has fucking nothing to do with, um, you know, the exact little tiny changes to your resistance training program that you've made. Like, I've been training people for a fucking decade, and that's never been like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is this is the, the bottleneck for you succeeding in your cut is you weren't doing enough short position work or something like that. You weren't doing systemic training. Like, now, I'm not saying that that's, that's actually a false dichotomy. It's not like you can't, you know, it's not like it's it's one or the other. Maybe it can help, but I don't believe they need to look much different at all. Frankly, I don't think they, I don't think that that's something that people should look for right away. I think there's way bigger rocks um, to focus on when it comes to succeeding in your cut, not, oh my God, what part of my programming do I need to change? You need to train fucking hard, close to failure with enough volume to maintain muscle. You have, think about it this way. Think about it this way. You, you have removed the greatest anabolic signaling process in your body calories. You have removed that from the equation. You are working with minimal, minimal building blocks, not as much as you need. So you need to be making sure that the, the other side of the equation, the training stimulus is adequate for you to maintain muscle while you don't have the greatest anabolic signaling thing that you can give your body, which is eating enough calories. Um, cool. Hopefully that will suffice. Um, my hamstrings take five to six days to recover and I only do two sets of stiff-legged deadlifts, but my quads recover fast. Why is that? Um, when people talk about how fast that their X muscle recovers, it's mostly gonna come down to what you did for that muscle. And so stiff-legged deadlifts are hardest in the length of position. They're extremely, they're not just lengthened overload, but they take the hamstring to a very lengthened position. And so they have that both of those going for them that's going to cause more muscle damage. That's going to create this like SRA curve or this like how long it takes your muscle to recover. It's going to be over a longer time scale. And so it's going to come down to what you're doing. Now we'll talk a little bit about just like the differences in muscle groups here, but um, stiff-legged deadlifts, again, they're hardest in the length of position. They also take the hamstring to a very lengthened position. They're going to be two sets of stiff-legged deadlifts might take you four, five, three, you know, three to five days to recover from. They're just that damaging. Um, and it also matters how close you went to failure. So how many sets did you do? What exercises did you do? How close did you go to failure? And so I would look at those two things for your quads. Maybe you're doing three sets of leg extensions and three sets of leg presses for your quads, right? Neither of those challenge the quads in a really lengthened position. Even the leg press is more of like a mid-range. You don't get a lot, of, you don't get maximal knee flexion. Um, you don't get your quad as lengthened in a leg press as you do your hamstrings in a stiff-legged deadlift. And so the 
the relationship there in terms of length is different and that's relevant to the, you know, training a muscle at longer lengths is going to make it more sore and it's going to take it longer to recover from. Um, and so I would take a look at what you're doing, how many sets you're doing, what exercises you're doing and how close you're going to failure. You know, there's something to be said. The hamstrings uh, tend to be what's called a fast twitch muscle. You have different types of uh, muscle fibers in each muscle and the um, hamstrings are on a bit, how would I, how would I want to actually explain this without fucking going super in depth? Um, hamstrings have a higher percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers than other muscles in the body. They're really strong, really powerful, contract really quickly. They're your sprinting muscles. Um, and because of that, they also take on more damage. And so hamstrings, again, also a bioarticular muscle. Now the quad has one part of it, the rec fem, which is also bioarticular. And so the hamstrings, because they're bioarticular and they're faster twitch, they're going to get extremely sore, especially from something that's being trained in the length of position like SLDL. Um, and so I'm not surprised. Uh, I think people are going to find that their hamstrings get sore way easier than their quads or their bice, or, or, you know, whatever, or other muscles on their body, let's say. But it also really comes down to, if someone's like, oh, my biceps are really sore, but my delts aren't. I'm not like, oh yeah, that's because the biceps are bioarticular. I'm like, well, let me just first take a look at what you're doing. Like maybe you're training in a very lengthy position all the way to failure with a ton of sets. I mean, that, that would make a ton of sense to me why something would be more sore. But yeah, there's there are slightly different things uh, that, are, that do play a, a part in here. One is the muscle fiber type dominance and also is muscles that are biarticular or muscles that, Cross two joints like the hamstrings, like the rec fem and the quad, like the biceps, um, probably both respond to stretch under load in terms of hypertrophy benefit better, meaning they, they probably get more benefit of being stretched under load, but they also get more muscle damage per unit of work there. Cool. Uh, heard a coach saying dumbbell side raises are bad for joints and resistance profile is poor. So side raises, meaning lateral raises, uh, are bad for the joints and resistance profile is poor. So let's address the first one. Are lateral raises bad for the joints? Um, I think that's wildly overstated. Even if you're doing them poorly, there are better and worse ways to do lateral raises. I think uh, something that's been booming in the last fucking year is this discussion of raising in the scapular plane, which is a way to from a shoulder mechanic, from a joint integrity perspective, be a bit safer and healthier for the shoulder. It also does line things up better for the lateral head of the delt. So it's kind of a win-win here. And so if you're raising your, if you're doing lateral raises directly out to the side, yeah, that's probably not as good for the joints as raising in what's called the scapular plane, which just means about 30-ish degrees in front of the body. So not directly out to the side, not directly out to the front, somewhere in that middle is usually a good place to start. If you're doing that, it's probably better for joint joint mechanics. And frankly, I think at that point, it's extremely safe exercise. And I even think if you raise to the side, you're not getting shoulder cancer, your arm's not gonna fucking fall off your body, you're gonna be okay. Um, as far as poor resistance profile, resistance profile just means where the movement is the hardest. Um, the lateral raise is hardest at the top. Right? I can all picture doing a lateral raise. Lateral raise is hardest at the top. It's easiest at the bottom when your arm is at the side. It's gonna be hardest when your arm is at 90 degrees with the line of force, which is gravity. So when your arm is straight out, that's gonna be the hardest part of the lateral raise. And that's a relatively short muscle position for the medial delt. What that means, the muscle is relatively shortened. It's gonna be more stretched at the bottom. And if we're looking for exercises that are best for hypertrophy, generally, very generally, we're gonna to wanna to pick exercises that challenge muscles at longer lengths. And the more lengthened position for the lateral delt is actually at the bottom of a lateral raise. But we just said the bottom of the lateral raise, there's no tension. And so yes, yes, a lateral raise has a downside where it is hardest at the short position and provides basically no tension in the lengthened position. 
Now, we can actually rectify that a couple of ways, which we'll get into in a second, but that doesn't mean it is a bad exercise. It doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means that you might rank order it slightly below other variations for hypertrophy. And again, even though you rank it below things, doesn't mean it's something you never do. That is absolutely untrue. People have been doing lateral raises and building amazing delts for fucking millennia. Millennia? I don't know. Maybe 100 years or so, let's say. Um... And so you can take something like a cable lateral raise and you can set up a cable lateral raise so that as hardest at the bottom, you can actually flip the resistance profile and make it hardest at the bottom and easier at the top, which kind of more appropriately reflects um, the strength curve of the muscle and also kind of what we would want for hypertrophy. But again, lateral raises, I mean, do you never do leg extensions? You never do uh, a, a ham curl? Like, of course you do, right? They, they might not challenge a muscle in as lengthened a position, but that doesn't mean there's not a place for them in the program. All right, let's kill this monster and let's finish this off. Um, doo, 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 doo. A lot of questions here. Whoop, lost one. Where are we here? I'm injured and I need to take a few weeks off. Continue taking creatine. Absolutely. Honestly, even if you don't train, taking creatine is a solid idea. Obviously, it's not nearly going to be nearly as beneficial, but there's like some sliver of hope that there's some cognitive benefit. There was a study recently that came out that there was some cognitive benefits in the elderly. Um, it's just, there's no downside. It's super cheap. I'm not, listen, if you resistance train, there's way more benefit to, to, to making sure you have full creatine stores by taking creatine, of course, because you're using more of that to lift weights. Um, and strength and performance matters for you a lot because you're pushing yourself in strength and performance. But even if you're not training, um, I still think creatine can be beneficial. I, I'm not saying it's as beneficial. It definitely isn't. But I don't know. The, the big thing you need to know is it's not a big deal. If you stop taking creatine while you're taking a few weeks off, you know, if you take a full month off creatine, then you will have to wait another full month upon taking creatine again for your muscle cells to be fully saturated again. Is that a big deal? Really, it isn't. You should be taking creatine. Let's say you're resistance training regularly. You're going to be taking creatine every day for the rest of your life. And so when we're talking about this, it's like really minute drop in the bucket, raindrop in the ocean sort of stuff. If you take a couple weeks off creatine, it's not going to be the end of the world. Creatine doesn't even do that much. It definitely helps, but it's not like you're going to take it and then not take it and be like, oh my God, I shriveled up into a raisin. I, I can't lift any weights anymore. All my strength is gone. You probably won't even feel any difference outside of you actually just taking some time off, which you might feel a difference from. Um, me personally, I might still take it depending on how many weeks we're talking about. And let's say I was out for six months and I was not resistance training. I was bedridden or something. I might start taking it again a couple months before I start training so that when I do get back to training that my muscles are fully saturated and I can immediately get the full benefit of it but it's super fucking cheap. It's easy to take. Um, and so you might as well just be like, all right, screw it. I'll just stick to my routine. There's like, there's no downside and maybe upside. Um, I'm not so sure what the research says on recovery, depending on what your injury is like. I don't think that there's much benefit there, frankly. Um, I could be wrong though. Next question. As a coach, how do you get clients to actually adhere to nutrition on the weekends? Sheesh. How do you get clients to adhere to nutrition on the weekends? I... I I don't get clients to do anything. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the first thought I was thinking is I don't get them to do anything. My job, or at least what I think I do well, I'm looking over at my book cabinet at motivational interviewing. And that's, if you don't, haven't read that book and you're a coach, please go read it. It's not your job to get your client to do anything. It's your, it's your job to get your clients to decide for themselves to do something. And how do I get my clients to, <laughs> yeah, a kind of uh, circular logic here, but how do I get my clients to adhere on the weekends is by just having a reflective chat with them about what they want and whether or not uh, this, their behaviors on the weekend, said behaviors are getting in the way of that. And if 
changing those things is actually something they want to do. Um, is it something they want to do? And if it is, the one thing you can do as a coach is, is maybe help them by giving them the tools, support, maybe there's there's guidance, maybe there's materials, maybe there's education. You know, it's, it's not your job to decide that this is important to them. It is your job to kind of discuss, hey, are these actions serving you? Uh, you have, or you've said you have goal X. It's gonna cost Y. Like, we're not doing Y right now. Is that a reflection of what you really want? P.S., that might be fine, by the way. They might be like, well, actually, I don't wanna change my behaviors on the weekend. And you might be like, okay, that's cool. We can't get the thing that you said you wanted. You know, maybe we can, but it's gonna really take trade-offs over here. And, you know, it's about talking about what the options are with somebody. I mean, you are the GPS. The GPS doesn't get anybody anywhere. It shows people how to get there. It helps them, you know, get back on track if they've gotten back, you know, if they've gotten off track, you know, take detours when things come up. And so it's not the GPS's job to take the person there. The person has to want to go there. Um, and so the best thing you can do is be a mirror and reflect back to them what you're hearing. Give, of course, you're giving tools. You know, if my clients need to... Um, need help generating some of these foundational habits. We're going to go through that in a step-by-step -step process, but being reflective with them and just saying, hey, is this, you know, are these behaviors allowing us to move closer to this goal? Do we want to reevaluate our goals or do we want to reevaluate our behaviors? One of those two has to give. You can't, you know, have your cake and eat it too, for lack of a more, you know, uh, a better, more applicable analogy here. And so I think it's just important. It's like, do we want to reevaluate our behaviors and look at our lifestyle and see if there's places that we can, you know, low hanging fruit for us to make some improvements to kind of get the best out of our lifestyle and our fitness goals? Or do we want to reevaluate the fitness goals? I think it's fine. I think it's important to, you know, I tell people all the time, I don't, I don't help people lose weight. My goal is to improve your quality of life. Now I, I do that through, the discussion and the realm of health and fitness, but sometimes the best thing that you can give your client is helping them realize they don't actually want what they say they want. That fitness and losing the last five pounds and getting lean and isn't as important as they once thought it was. I mean, that's a beautiful gift to give somebody. Frankly, I, that's one of the most rewarding gifts that I give is somebody being like, you know what, actually, fuck it, man. I'm, I'm happier five to 10 pounds heavier with a couple hundred extra calories because honestly, who gives a shit? And I don't want 90 year old me to realize I pissed away most of my life trying to get super shredded all the time. And obviously I'm going on a huge rant here, but I think that that's something I'm very passionate about. I don't, um, don't think it's your job to get your client to do anything other than be honest with themselves. You give them tools and guidance and support, but they are the driver and start seeing and framing conversations that way. And you're gonna get your clients to either make better results or at least make better decisions for themselves. And that's at the end of the day, what you really want. Cool. Next question, high rep kettlebell halos on off days as overall shoulder mobility strength move, not for hypertrophy. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't think that, I don't want to shit on this, but do you have bad shoulder mobility? And if you do have bad shoulder mobility, um, I'm just not sure that this is where I would put my eggs. Uh, doing high rep kettlebell halos as overall shoulder mobility or strength. You know the best way to have really good shoulder mobility and strength is to execute your movements in a way that makes biomechanical sense. You wanna not fuck up your shoulders. You wanna have healthy shoulders. Don't press with your arms abducted up at 90 degrees. You know, Start to pay attention to the way you're executing movements. Do it in a correct way with good tempo and control. Don't do too much. You know, Don't do more than you can recover from. You know, Don't do a fuckload of heavy barbell work. You know, If that's something that has you know given you elbow or shoulder pain in the past. Um, I'm just not sure. It's not that this is bad. I just view these things as like you have a, everything has an opportunity cost. You have a finite amount of brain power to expend on this stuff. 
just make sure that you're really looking at your programming, where you are exercising and working hard, and you're executing those movements in a way that makes biomechanical sense with good technique. Um, training hard, this is not mutually exclusive. You should be training hard, but you know, starting to pay a little bit more attention to how you're moving when you're training is probably 95% of having, let's say, overall healthy joints, unless there's like pre-existing structural stuff. Obviously, I'm, I'm not privy to, but um, it'd be this would be very low on my list of like, hey, so someone's like, oh, I wanna make sure that I have good shoulder strength and mobility. It's like, okay, let's look at your program and make sure you're doing this stuff in a way that makes sense. Um, you're gonna hurt yourself doing this? No. Uh, do I think this is gonna make any notable difference? No. Uh, would I rather you, although not mutually exclusive, focus on how you're executing your pressing and your rowing and your pulling and your overhead work and making sure you're not doing too much? Absolutely, yes. Uh, doo, 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 doo. Next question. I love long distance ru running, but want to build muscle too. Any advice? Um, yeah, I love long distance running. Um, the first is to understand that these things, physiologically speaking, are quite counter to one another. They are very far away, you know, building the, the kind of, uh, physiological processes that, that handle muscle hypertrophy are very different than those that are involved in like endurance cardiovascular adaptations. I'm not saying that the interference effect is so great that you will not make gains if you want to run. I have a great podcast with, uh, Dr. Alyssa. Dr. Alyssa Olenek, um, really just like, obviously she's really uh, at the forefront of the, what we would call a concurrent training. I think she would coin it hybrid training where you do a bit of both. Um, my advice to you is to, to at least consider if one of them is more important. I'm not saying one is, but is there a one A and a one B? Is there something that you care more about adapting to? And then there's another one that you care more about doing for enjoyment because I think that is really important. Are they equally important or is something a little bit more important? I'm gonna pretend like adapting to your resistance training and getting stronger and building muscle is more important, but you like, 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 are you going on your distance runs, like timing yourself and checking your pace and looking to improve and you got a race and you care how you do, or are you going on runs because it's, you know, you think it's good for your mental health, obviously it's good for your physical health, um, but it's just something you like doing. And then you look at your strength training and you're like, well, this is something I really want to progress on. I go into the gym every week hoping to make progress. I really want to see strength and physique change over time. If that's how you felt, then I would have a conversation, go down a road of like, okay, that means we probably don't wanna do, or we wanna see, um, we wanna make sure that we're doing enough hypertrophy or strength or whatever work to get that adaptation near maximally. And then how much recoverability, how much more recovery capacity does your life provide you? Like if you have all your ducks in a row, could you do, excuse me, four days of hypertrophy training and two days of endurance running? Yeah, I think you could if you had all your ducks in a row. Could you do four days of hypertrophy and four days of endurance running? I, I, unless you're like a physical freak phenomenon anomaly, probably not. Um, but I would try and see my first advice is, is there a rank order? Is there a 1A and a 1B? Because then you can say, okay, that means I need to get enough of 1A to make sure I'm adapting at a rate that I'm happy with. And then I can fit in enough of whatever I have left in for let's say the running in this, in this hypothetical. If you cared about them both equally, then I would really down uh, down or, or down regulate your expectations of how fast you'll adapt to both of them. And I would strongly consider periodizing if you were really serious. Now I'm not suggesting you should be really serious about it, but let's say you were really serious about it. Then maybe you'd have seasons of your fitness where 
you're pushing the cardiovascular adaptations harder and you have your strength and resistance training adaptations on maintenance volume, maybe one to two times a week, you're doing heavy lifts, compounds, but then most of the time you're doing your running training to kind of push those adaptations. And then maybe you'd have other seasons where you have your cardiovascular fitness on maintenance and you're pushing more hypertrophy and strength adaptations. If you were like a pro that that's what you would do, I'm not suggesting anybody does that, but usually when I talk to somebody with this discussion, they have a 1A and a 1B. They're like, well, I really wanna make sure I'm, I'm getting better at X but I also wanna do Y. Well then structure your programming in a way that reflects that. Do enough of of X to make gains at X and then whatever you have left, you can do with Y. Now, how do you know if you're doing too, so much running that's affecting your lifting, it will affect your lifting. It'll affect your performance. People are like, oh, can I do a CrossFit class on top of your hypertrophy training? Not to dive into that question too much, but if you do a CrossFit class with my hypertrophy work, and you're not progressing in the hypertrophy work. You're catching yourself exhausted, fatigued when you come into the session and you're not seeing progression week to week like consistently. Then the whole of what you're doing is more than you can recover from. And then you'd have to pick and choose obviously because that'd be a pretty, like the best indicator of I'm doing too much is I'm not progressing. I'm not seeing myself adapt in a way that's allowing me to get stronger and actually see the numbers go up. Um, and so, yeah, whatever, there's a longer discussion here. There's definitely an end of one situation where I'd like to take a look at exactly how you feel and what you're talking about. Um, but hopefully that kind of whet your appetite there. I would definitely go listen to that podcast with, uh, 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 Alyssa. She's great. About to join your group. If I want to add direct ab work, how would the best way in, how would the best way in your program? Um, you could add in maybe one or two exercises, let's say two to three times a week. Uh, again, you have to focus on what you could recover from. If you're doing something like gar hammers that have, which I would recommend, which have a fairly uh, intense eccentric component, lengthening phase, you probably find, get really fucking sore from those. I could do gar, gar hammers and be sore for four days. Um, me personally, I would do one exercise at the end of two of my workouts and I would start with that and I would see how I'm recovering. Maybe on the end of, each upper body day, you're like, hey, at the end of, or at the end of lower body day, whatever, you're gonna do, you know, three sets of gar hammers, and on the other day, you're gonna do three sets of cable crunches or a TVA crunch or a, some some sort of like a, where you're bringing your rib close to your pelvis, some sort of crunch from the top down, let's say on a on a GHD or even just on a mat or on a Swiss ball or something like that. Cable crunch is all really great. Um, if I had to pick ab exercises that I think are uh, even remotely worth your time, everyone who's probably listening to this knows my take on ab training that it's likely uh, a cherry on top of really good training. If you wanna have a strong core, chances are just lift with good technique and you're gonna be fine. But if you really wanted to like, I really wanna have the best six pack of all time, then sure, direct ab training makes a ton of sense. Um, I would do, like think about PS, what is ab training? How do we train the, the uh, rectus abdominis, the six pack muscles? Well, what we wanna do is create spinal flexion, which is like the rounding of your back, which is like a lot of times people are like, oh my God, don't round your back. That's what the abs do. And so we wanna make sure we're doing that. You can do it in two ways. You can bring your pelvis closer to your rib cage, which is like hanging knee raise or gar hammers, something where you're bringing, let's say your legs up, right? Um, it's not really the legs, but whatever. Those movements, it looks like you're moving your lower body upward. And then we have other movements where you're moving the top down or you're bringing your rib cage closer to your pelvis, flexing, let's say from the top down, something like a crunch or some form of crunch variation. We talk about training the internal obliques and stuff like that another time. Next question is, does training change if you're entering a peak week, wedding honeymoon type deal? I, I gotta tell you, I really don't know what this means. Um, like the week before your wedding or honeymoon. Um, 
I'm not only not sure, but I also maybe I'm maybe I'm bitter when I read that question. I just don't want you to care this much about how like trying to look absolutely fucking perfect to the point where you're micromanaging like the your your hydration status 72 hours before your wedding or your honeymoon or a vacation or something like that. Um, I almost don't want to help uh, with that question because I just want you to not care so much about, oh my God, I need to be fucking peeled for this one second of my life. So I have this crazy cool photo that I look back every 10 years and think, oh my God, I looked so great that day. Why am I so fat right now? Like just seeing that happen all too often. So um, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would have a couple days off, maybe a day or two off before that happened. Let's say you're doing a photo shoot. You probably wouldn't fucking crush yourself all the way up until the photo shoot. You'd be carrying a little bit of inflammation. You kind of want let the, let that subside at least 24 hours beforehand. But to be honest, it's not my area of expertise. I don't bodybuild. I don't train bodybuilders. I don't prep people for photo shoots. I have before, but not, I wouldn't do it on, if you were like prepping for a, a cover of, uh, photo shoot for like fucking men's, men's health magazine, it, w- it wouldn't be me that would help bring you to that. Um, so not necessarily my area of expertise. Next question, why phases or training cycles? Why do you not, what do you do in between? Why not just train continuously? Um, okay, a couple of things here. I don't want to make this answer go too long because there's a bunch of things that jump to my mind right now. A um, couple fundamental things you need to understand. If you are hard enough, and P.S., I'm going to link you to episode 100. It is uh, my updated thoughts on deloads, um, why you need them, how to go about doing them, different kinds of deloads, and just like generally what I would prescribe for most people. If you're training hard enough to make gains, and that's a big if, by the way, because if you're training two or three times a week and you're not really focused on progressive overload, you're not really like looking at the numbers and trying to like make them go up week to week, um, chances are you never need to deload, I think. If you're you're training three times a week, I'm not saying three times a week is nothing, but if you're training three times a week, I, I and you're not doing much else, by the way, let's say you're like, I train three times a week with weights, but I do fucking three Pelotons, two runs, a swim, you know, and I'm a mother of three and I work or okay, you probably need a deload. Um, but let's just, just say you're training three times a week and walking. You probably never need to deload because in that same vein, you're probably not making astronomical progress over the long haul, right? Maybe as a newbie, you can make amazing gains, by the way. I'm not, I'm not shitting on three times a week training. Most people are gonna make gains on three times a week training. The reason you probably don't need a deload there is because, you know, if you t- if you miss one workout, probably you have like five days off, right? If you train Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but you miss Friday's workout, you don't train again until Monday, it's just Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, that's four days. If you do that every six months or so, there's your deload. Um, but if you're training, you know, adequately hard to make gains on a consistent basis, you can't adapt to that stimulus forever and you pick up fatigue along the way. And what I mean is that, yes, at the end of each week, let's say you train four or five times a week. That's two or three rest days a week. Why do you rest? Well, you rest because you know you're getting tired from the workouts and you know it's important to have rest and recover, uh, rest and recovery for a couple of reasons. One is the muscle grows when you rest. I mean, it's kind of not, kind of not really a really good description. I don't really love that, but um, you know that you need to rest right? You can't just train every single day forever. Whenever people are like, well, why do you need to deload? I'm like, why do you need to take rest days? And they're like, well, you know, you got to make sure that you're uh, not carrying a ton of fatigue, that you're not really sore and you need to allow yourself to rest so that you can recover and train hard. It's the same exact thing, but on a longer time scale. Every six to 10 weeks, chances are if you've been training hard and you've been been progressing, you will find that that progression starts to slow down because you are getting more and more fatigued. You're training closer and closer to failure. And at some point you need to take one small step back, clean the slate in terms of dropping fatigue 
and resensitizing to the stimulus. What's what's the goal of a deload? There's two goals of a deload. One is to resensitize to the hypertrophy stimulus. It's like an analogy is taking a week off of caffeine. It's like if you needed caffeine to, for your for your work to perform optimally, you might schedule time away from caffeine to make sure when you're taking caffeine, it's working optimally. That's number one. You so you want to resensitize, right? Um, and, and that's probably the big one. Obviously, dropping fatigue is the other one. So you want to resensitize to the training stimulus so you can get more out of it. You also want to drop fatigue. You can't train hard forever. At some point, if you're continuing to progress, think about it this way. If you could just train week in and week out, never deload, and just get stronger every single week forever, you'd be the strongest person on earth if you kept adding a rep to everything each week for fucking 52 weeks, right? You'd be the strongest person on earth in no time. And so we do need this kind of push and pull cycle. And so I will link you to the description on that. Um, the other thing is, I don't, I'm not sure exactly where you're coming from for this question. So I'll answer a different question that I think you might mean is like, why not? Like, why do you change things? Um, why not do the same training? And, and I have a podcast I'll link in the description that talks about that as well. Um, but just remember, just because we're doing, let's say my my group program, for example, just because we're doing a new cycle of training doesn't mean we're doing a whole bunch of, like we're, we're changing the entire playbook. Most of the exercises in this new mesocycle in my group program are the same from last mesocycle, right? We are building, we are doing a lot of things continuously. That, that was the word you used. Why not just train continuously? Um, and so we are keeping a lot of things the same. We're not just, we're not just, oh, every six weeks we do fucking totally new stuff. We are keeping a lot the same so that we can have these apples to apps comparisons and really kind of learn certain techniques and really get in the groove with them and not have to change every four weeks so that you have to learn a bunch of new techniques every four weeks. And so hopefully those two answered your question a little bit. If not, I would definitely check out the deload discussion if that's something you're interested in. But again, there are, are a lot of people out there that are training to be fit and strong and healthy and they're doing resistance training two to three times a week and that's amazing. You can be really strong and healthy and do that. You don't need to deload, you're gonna be fine. If you're really pushing adaptations, trying to get more on the optimal side of results, you're training three, you know, four, maybe even five times a week, chances are at some point you're going to need to deload. If you want to know more about that, podcast episode 100, I'll link in the description. Um, what is the name of the adjustable width single cable attachment? Adjustable width single cable attachment. I think what you're talking about is the prime short bar that I'm using in some of my videos. Um, it has, uh, basically it's a, a, like a, just imagine like a bar. You can't see me on YouTube. You're not on YouTube, but you can attach two single handles and you can modify how wide those are. They have like different notches. Um, it's a prime short bar. They also sell a long bar. I think that makes sense. That's what's called. Uh, it's slightly larger if you want to use a slightly wider handles. I really think that for most people, the short bar is going to be good enough. Um, but the wide handle, obviously, if you want some wider armed work. Next question. Uh, any tips for those of us with desk jobs and a lot of sitting are under the desk bike pedals effective? Uh, let's start with an understanding that anything is better than nothing. Literally anything. But is bike pedals better than nothing? Absolutely. Is a treadmill desk better than nothing? Absolutely. Treadmill desks are unbelievable. Um, you have a couple options, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat this. You're either move like you you need to move. You need to be more conscious about trying to move, right? So how do we do that? You're either moving while you're working. You get a treadmill desk. You can try this under the bike pedal thing. I have not seen that, but that that bruh, that's much better than just sitting, right? I mean, if you can pedal and and just keep blood flow in the muscles and I think there's there's still room for better than that. I think getting up, getting out of that hip flexed position, that that seated position, that hunched shoulder rounded position, getting out of that position, going for a fucking walk more often. Number one thing you can do is, I don't know what your job is like. You have a desk job. Can you get up and move 
every every hour, two hours, three hours? Can you get up and go for a walk? Can you every hour go get a drink at the water fountain? You know, go to the bathroom. Um, you know, do some form of movement. I think that that would be an amazing thing. Can you integrate it into your day? Are there times during the day in your workday where you can make a concerted effort to move? Period. As much as possible. That's number one. You only have two options: do it while you work or do it while you're not working. And so, if you have if you're working at a desk job, my advice is really kind of vet your day-to-day life at work. How can I fit in more movement? Can I, every hour, can I have a timer? I get up, I walk, I touch the door, I come back. Whatever, who fucking knows? Every time I go to the bathroom, do I do a lap around the office? Again, is that possible? Can I take a Zoom call or can I take a phone call on a treadmill? Can I do that? Um, all options. But if you can't, if you're fucking glued to your chair, then you're gonna have to move more on the bookends, right? Earlier, before work, after work. And so, number one is, where can I get more steps, more movement out throughout the day? I think this bike thing is something that's way better than nothing. I think it's pretty cool actually, but I don't think it would take the place for me of like getting up out of your chair, out of that rounded back position, out of that flexed hip position. Um, but I absolutely think that it's it's worth exploring totally. Um, and then if not, you're the kind of person who's gonna get more movement after the day. Make sure you go for a walk before you get to work and go for a walk after work. And that's your routine now. I know that it's not easy. Not everyone has the same life and stuff like that, but I'm just saying those are your options. You either find more time, find find space in your day or on the bookends before and after work. Um, I would say that they're not the same. I might actually want you to get up more during the day and they're not mutually exclusive. You could do a bit of both. Um, But I wouldn't want you to be like, cool, I'm just gonna sit for eight fucking straight hours and then I'll walk before I'll walk after. Now that is certainly better than not walking before and after and then sitting at your desk for eight hours but I would still really recommend getting up and moving around if you can. How many more of these we got? What time are we at? 41? Yeah, I got some time. What time is it? 1.30? All right. Let's see. Let's pick a couple more here. Thoughts on kneeling squats. Good for growth or a waste of time? Basically, those you guys can't see, kneeling squats are something that's done. Basically, you have a bar on your back and you're down on your knees and you sit your butt down onto your heels and then you push yourself back up into a hips extended kind of straight body position, but knees still bent. Um, I don't like saying that something is completely useless, but this is probably as close as you could get to completely useless. Um, if anything, it's a decent, it's, it's like lengthening the quads and the rec fem a little bit. Um, but most people are doing this for glutes. It's an absolutely dog shit. And I say that with uh, the most truth. It is hot garbage. It's awful. This is something you should literally never do. Um, think about it this way. What are your glutes doing in that movement? Well, they're extending your body, your hips forward. The tension is coming from the top down. If you want to train hip extension, your hips are extending forward, you wouldn't need the weight pulling you backwards. Now, if we take a kneeling squat and we flip it 90 degrees, it's a glute bridge. And that's why you should just do glute bridges. Way better. Next question. I work out at 5.30 a.m. What are pre-workout meals you recommend? I'll be totally honest. You don't need to eat before you train. If you wake up very close to when you train, right? Don't eat. You could maybe have sip on some Gatorade. Like, like, I don't want you getting up an hour earlier because some guru said you need to have a, a fucking perfect meal of carbs and complex, simple carbs. You got to have fucking Starburst and a protein shake or whatever. Don't do that. Get enough sleep. I, if your choice is 30 extra minutes of sleep or having a, a rice cake so I can digest it, fuck that. Just go train fasted. You're going to be fine. The circumstances in which I might recommend a intro workout, so like having some carbohydrates or even a protein shake during your training is if your training is you know north of 75 minutes or so. Like if you have a long grueling session, chances are having some carbohydrates in your system, even, even during training, sipping on Gatorade before, like upon waking up into the session, 
you know, it doesn't need to be chugging it, but having some of some glucose into your body is probably a good idea if you're having like long grueling sessions. If I train fasted, I tend to do that just because I'm somebody who I do know that I train better fed. I think we all would probably train a little bit better fed. The research pretty much supports that, but it's not for everybody. Dude, training at 530 is realistic for a lot of people. It's what is the only thing that is realistic for a lot of people. And so listen, if you wake up, you're like, hey dude, I train at 4, uh, 530, but I'm always up at 445. Okay, great. Have a rice cake and a protein shake. At the end of the day, pre-workout meal, ugh, pre-workout meal compared to your total habitual intake, fucking means dog shit, means nothing. Eat something that you can digest well before you train so that you're not digesting it while you train, right? You know, is some faster digesting carbs and protein are usually what people recommend, but guess what? It's the faster digesting part. The fact that it will be, you won't be digesting, people are, don't eat fat before you train. Guess why not? Because fat uh, uh, digests slower and you're still digesting it while you train. And so if you are thinking about pre-workout meal guys, don't overcomplicate it. Eat something that you digest within the time that you have before you train. If you're training in three hours, you can eat fucking anything. You're going to be fine. If you're training in one hour, don't have huevos rancheros, you know, like uh, don't have like um, a, a tomahawk steak, you know, so so give that some thought. The sooner you're training, the faster digesting and the less total calories it should be. The further away you are from training, the more you can have a mixed meal of some fiber and some fat, which is going to slow down the digestion process and it's going to be fine. You have three hours. So at the end of the day, I don't want you to feel like you have to eat. If you don't have time, you're getting up at five, you're getting in the gym at 5.30, maybe sip on some intra-workouts, maybe, maybe sip on some electrolytes. I make big, like big air quotes there. I don't think it matters a whole lot. If you have a long grueling session, yeah, I would experiment with an intra-workout and see if you feel better that way. If you don't feel better that way, then I care that you feel good. Let's not like, it's definitely working. It's like, do you feel any difference? You're like, nope. Are you feeling like progression is better? Nope. Okay, well, it's probably not a big deal then. Um, that's my rant on that. What do we got left? All right, let's finish these. I got five more here. Um, in between weights, too heavy weight for fewer reps than prescribed or too light for more? This question gets asked in my group all the time. If you're doing lateral raises with the 10s and then you want to go to the 15s, but when you're doing them with the 10s, let's say I gave you eight to 12 reps for a lateral raise. You grab the 12, the 10 pounders and you do 15, which is more reps than I prescribed. But that's the only way you can, you can actually make the set hard is to do more reps than I prescribed or you grab the 15s and you can only do six, which is less reps than I prescribed. At the end of the day, if they both look really good, which is a big caveat we'll get to in a second, they both look perfect, it doesn't really matter a whole lot, and I might actually err on the lower end. I might pick the six reps. Now, the problem is, in this exact example, with a lateral race, for example, usually you grab the heavier one and your technique suffers, but you really wanna use the heavier one because you're excited about getting stronger and you don't really feel like doing 15 or more reps, so I'll grab the heavier weight, and you do six kind of like, oomphy, muscly reps where you're just kind of using a bunch of momentum. So if that's the case, if it's, hey, I, I picked the lighter weight, my reps look really good, but I have to do more of them, or I picked the heavier weight, my reps don't look so great, but I don't have to do as many of them, I want the one with good technique. So let's, let's pretend like your technique is perfect on both of them. You have one rule, and again, it's not even a hard and fast rule, but it's a very general rule, is don't do less than five reps. Let's just pretend like less than five reps isn't good for hypertrophy. It's not not good for hypertrophy. It's probably less good, but only by a little bit, but it, it gives you a line in the sand. It's like, if you can do six or more reps with it, go nuts. If you can do six or more reps with good technique, that's fine. You can do less reps than I prescribed. I'm, I'm giving you my answer if you ask this and you're in my group. But a lot of times, practically speaking, just after training hundreds of people over the years, um, usually it, they're between a weight that's light, but they do really good technique with, and it's a good quality set, and a heavier weight that they really wanna use for six kind of oomphy sloppy reps. If that's you, don't do the sloppy reps. 
Don't do less than five reps. I'm fine with doing the light, the lighter weight and just pushing reps up until maybe next mesocycle, you can come back and try the heavier load. Next question, how would you coach someone with significant pelvic floor issues? I would refer them out to a pelvic floor specialist. This is not something that you should be, uh, if you have, because you use the word significant, by the way, that's where I kind of draw a line in the sand of like, go see a specialist. If you have significant something, go, if someone's like, hey, I have a significant ACL tear. You're like, yeah, I got it. No, go see a specialist. Um, go see somebody who who specializes in pelvic floor therapy, please. Pelvic floor strengthening. Um, I'm missing the correct terminology there, but go to see somebody who specializes in this. Next question, why raise versus lateral raise? What's the difference and should I do both in the same meso? A Y raise is where your arms end, let's say in in uh, with your arms over your head, which is technically the fully shortened position for the lateral, for the lateral delt. A lateral raise, I think that's the lateral raise ends in let's say a shorter position, but not a fully shortened position. Um, and so, should you do them both in the same meso? You can. They are training the muscle in a slightly different range of motion, uh, a different position, a different length, and poten potentially a different resistance profile if you're using cables. If you're just using dumbbells, then yes, they're going to both be hardest at the top. Um, but here's the deal. You can do them both in the same meso. Even if they were more overlapping, they're, they're fairly overlapping. You could still do them in the same meso. Like this idea that you can't do things that overlap, of course you can. Um, is there an argument that maybe you should check some other boxes before, you know, adding something that is arguably redundant? Yeah, maybe, but I think you could totally, I mean, I've, I program the, both of them all the time. Let's just call that what it is. I program them both all the time. I think that if you're trying to grow your delts um, and, and honestly, I think Y raises are amazing for the lower traps, uh, generally shoulder health, good idea to take things to the fully short position. Um, I love both of them. I think you could totally do them both. Should you do both? A totally different story, but you could do both. Why is a dual cable pull down machine Dual cable pull-down machine harder than a single. I really don't know. I wanted to answer something sarcastically. Like, actually, I couldn't. Uh, you're saying a single arm machine is easier. Uh, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> you're moving less weight. Yeah, I mean, you got one arm. Um, yeah, I really don't know. Dual cable. I dual cable pull-down machine. Dual cable. Oh, I think I know what you mean. When you're at the gym and you have like the there's like a life fitness and you're sitting at the lap pull-down machine and it has a single handle versus one that has the two kind of carabiners coming off the two tracks. Um, why is it interesting? Why would that be harder? Um, you might be pulling the amount of weight that you put on the pin in each hand. And so if you put like 45 pounds on, you try and pull with just one arm, you might get actually more weight than that in that one side versus if you pulled the two arms, you'd be distributing that load over two arms. Um, there's something somewhere in what I just said is the truth. So if I have two handles and I put the pin on 45 and I pull with one arm, it's going to be more than the 45, let's say, or it's going to be more than if I used both arms. But if I put 45 on one that has a single carabiner and I'm using both arms or even one arm, it's going to be actually that much load. Somewhere in what I just said is the truth. I don't know exactly if that's how it's working, if it's like half the weight or it's some percentage of it. My gym has finally invested in a back extension machine. Where should you hold the weight? Close to the chest or head? Uh, close to the chest slash head. Listen, the further up your body you hold it, the further away from your hips you hold it, the heavier it will be. Physics, it's a longer moment arm. The weight is further from the pivot point. Thus, it will kind of simulate weighing heavier. It will, it will um, put on more resistance on, at that joint. And so I like holding the weight up by the forehead. 
because that creates the longest moment arm and you don't need to use as much weight. However, once you are really strong and you need 20, 30, 40 pounds, sometimes holding a 40 pound dumbbell on your forehead can be hard. And so then I like to move to a dumbbell under the chin. Now that obviously that's brought it down a little bit. And so the moment arm's a little bit less. And so it, it is gonna feel a little bit lighter per pound. And so you might need to make a bigger jump when you make that sort of a jump. Um, and so there is no should. What I advise people to do is find a spot that is comfortable for you where you holding the weight is not the limiting factor, right? You holding the weight should not be the limiting factor. You, your glutes and your hams performing hip extension should be the limiting factor. And so if you hold the dumbbell at the forehead and you get super fucking tired, your arms and your upper back are tired from holding it, that's not the move. Find a place where you feel really strong and holding the weight is really easy so that you can actually create tension where you want it and bring those muscles close to failure. Last question uh, is a two-parter. Can cluster sets be included on sarcoplasmic stimulus maybe as a third exercise, incline curl to facing away cable curl? Incline curl, facing in cable curl, and then inline curl cluster. Got you, the third exercise, A1, A2, and then an inline curl cluster. You said the word can, and so the answer is yes. Can you include this? Absolutely. If you do this, you know, is Wormtail gonna, you know, kind of make this like weird stew in the graveyard and then cut Harry open and then take Tom Riddle's dad's bone and use Harry's blood and kind of do this weird thing where he puts it in there and then then Voldemort's gonna come out looking like this creepy little baby, um, you know, but then he gets his body back. Actually, is he a baby in that scene? I don't know if he's a baby. Then he grows and then he calls the Death Eaters and then he like rips their masks off, gets really mad at Malfoy's dad. That's all gonna happen anyway, whether you do this or not. So you could totally do this. I don't think that that's anything wrong. You're not gonna offset that timeline there. Um, all jokes aside, I guess a cluster set is technically more, uh, actually it depends what rep range you're doing the cluster set in. Here's the deal. I don't think a cluster set has a is really great in a sarcoplasmic. I think if it's a cluster set of something in lengthened position, um, it's gonna be more neuro or mechanical damage. Uh, and if the higher the rep range, the further away from neuro, the closer to potentially mechanical damage, potentially oxidative, depending on how, for, how far into failure you're taking it. It just isn't something that I think really fits with sarcoplasmic, but you asked me, can you do it? I don't think it's a big deal, just because I don't think, I love N1. I love what I learned with N1, totally. But I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to be this specific with the stimuli. I, I haven't found that to be something that is that important. I haven't been compelled to. Um, I haven't been convinced, and I'm not saying that I am this high threshold of needing convincing. It's just not something that I think is all that important. So we'll kind of cut it down there. And thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.